Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. Hello there and you're very welcome to the weekly Irish Times politics podcast. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio today is Fia Kelly from our political staff. Fia and I were talking a little earlier with Labour Party leader Brendan Howland about the challenges he faces in trying to revive the Labour Party. And we're going to hear that conversation in a little while. But first, Fia, it's all Trump, Trump, Trump these days. Trump everywhere you look. uh, And indeed, the followed from his executive order, uh, travel ban order of last Friday night, uh, dominated the cabinet yesterday that we had a couple of ministers and basically the entire cabinet come out and express deep unease at this chain of events, this quickly focused to the pre-clearance facilities at Dublin Airport in Shannon, um, kind of a slightly hilarious uh, <laughs> announcement of a review by the Taoiseach on Monday evening at a press conference with Theresa May, saying we will review this way this is operated and make sure that, that this complies with laws. And then the Attorney General told the cabinet yesterday that it was fully compliant with, with existing laws and there perhaps would be nothing to see here. And it was acknowledged by those in government that this review will largely find that the system is working very well. Thank you very much. So I well, think there was no know, reason to believe it didn't comply with no reason to believe that, I think All that stuff had been sorted out 10 years or so ago when it was set up in the first place. Exactly. And I think um, what it was, was it, it was a response to ministers taking various positions to suit their political base. So we had Catherine Zappone first out on Monday saying she wanted this to be reviewed because, you know, her voters are obviously concerned about it. And when she said it, Dennis Nocton said it, a couple of Finnegaters said it. So I think the Taoiseach was heading off at the past, something that could have been divisive at Cabinet. Uh, but so then is this all posturing then? It, pretty much, I yeah. would think so. Posturing uh, is what it is. This review is not going to find anything that we don't know already. The government have acknowledged that. And then there was the minor brouhaha over whether Enda Kenny should go to Washington or not. The only person who thinks he shouldn't was Shane Ross. But the, it's not a Cabinet decision. It's an invitation to teach directly. So what Shane Ross said bears no consequence really. It's just his opinion voice at the Cabinet table. So, I mean, international affairs are really just kind of top of the list and everything, because as you mentioned, the, uh, the Taoiseach was there with uh, a rather semi-detached looking uh, Theresa May, who admittedly had a tiring weekend on, on Monday to discuss Brexit matters. Yeah, she, she didn't really look engaged in the interaction she was having with the Taoiseach, and she was only in Dublin for, I think, an hour or two. The Taoiseach, to be fair to him, was strong both on Brexit issues at that press conference and on the Trump issue. He came out with a strong statement about, you know, we do not agree with this policy. But we're still none the wiser after that uh, meeting about future British-Irish relations. We're none the wiser since her speech of two weeks ago, which she indicated that Britain was going for a hard Brexit. We heard the usual soft language about no return to borders of the past, as frictionless as possible, maintain the common travel area. But we still don't know, or we've been given nothing new, about the vision our two leaders have for the future relationship of these islands. Do we have any sense that there's any actual... I mean, negotiation, perhaps, is not the, not the word, but there's, setting out of stalls in some way. There is a setting out of stalls. There's, there's, a, there's a common view, for example, on the common travel area that we want it maintained, Britain wants it maintained. So it would be hard to see in a scenario like that where the two countries are at idem that the European Union says no. Um, where the trickiness is going to come in is, you know, trading 
obviously we cannot we can't we have to negotiate as a block of twenty seven. But what is our going to, our future tra- trade relations going to be? Union customs union new, versus are they going to be an associate member of the customs union as Theresa May possibly indicated? Are they going to be out of the customs unions entirely? Um, they're the questions that remain to be resolved, and obviously the border. What was the border going to look like? Uh, interestingly, Michael Noonan yesterday at a press conference to detail the government's new infrastructure review said that the model they looked at, that he said we have to invest more in ports and airports, for example. But he said there is a model if you look at how goods travel from Italy through Switzerland up to Germany, for example. They're just not opened. So you can cor- leave one European Union country, travel through another your documented, your your trucker, your freight is not touched, and then you come out the other side, and you're in the European Union. So he saw a situation arise where lorries still leave Dublin, go to Holyhead, drive down through Britain, then get the ferry over to Germany. Or this might or be more one for our colleagues in the business podcast, Indeed, which I recommend to all our listeners. But I, I, it does occur to me in relation to that that a huge amount of sort of distribution centres that deal with Irish supermarkets, Irish businesses of various sorts, whether they're going towards Europe or coming back towards Ireland, come through the UK. Yeah, and, and things do get opened. Things do get opened, and it, it is going, it is going to be a problem. There is one thing about the the the, the, bre- the Brexit activity on behalf of the government is undertaking that, um, you know didn't learn much from Monday, but I suppose the symbolism of Theresa May coming to Dublin and saying, we have a special relationship with bonds of family, etc., etc., etc. But there is a growing sense within Fine Gael, and it's not unrelated to the Taoiseach's recent difficulties, that uh, this Brexit activity is not a strategy. And perhaps we're seeing activity as a substitute for any meaningful idea of where we are going as a country. A couple of cabinet ministers are now coming to the view that this activity is all very well and good, but to what end? Does that have some implications for the never-ending discussions about yes. how long Enda Kenny's going to be in position? Yes. As in, you know, he had wrapped himself as Mr. Brexit. We don't need a minister for Brexit because that's me. Uh, as Enda Kenny would see it, and now some ministers and members of the parliamentary party say, you know, well, what are we doing on Brexit apart from a lot of activity that perhaps doesn't amount to a hill of beans? Thanks for that, Fia. Coming up, Brendan Howland. Brendan Howland, you're very welcome. Uh, we're approaching the first anniversary of the most catastrophic election result in Labour's history. But over the 12 months since that, have your views changed at all on the reasons for that result and what Labour needs to do to revive its fortunes? Well, you're right. It was a, uh, a catastrophic result for us. Um, not one that was entirely unexpected. We knew it, it was going to be a very difficult election for us. There's no gain saying that. I have to say that I was of the view that for the first time in our history, that the economic cycle would benefit us. And as recovery happened, as people got back to work, that we might get some political dividend from that because uh, we knew when we went in in 2011 that there was a torturous path ahead. And it was a real issue for us. Um, We had to debate long and hard uh, whether we would roll up our sleeves and try and do the best to protect the people who elected us in the worst crisis since the 1930s or whether we should just stand back and gain politically from it. Because there's no doubt, had we stood back, we'd probably be the largest uh, party in the subsequent doll whenever that election came about, although I'm of the belief that it would have happened quicker. Um, the reasons for the defeat uh, and for the loss of 30 seats, um, I think, are well rehearsed. Um, people endured incredible agony and lashed out at those that they felt... Uh, were at the top of government uh, at the time. Uh, and uh, some things stuck to us in this notion of broken promises, which <laughs> by any independent analysis uh, had very little merit. But it was it was the issue that um, people were able to, uh, t- to determine that they wouldn't be supporting Labour. 
Uh, and our, our argument, which I think was a, we had a good set of arguments in terms of uh, the economic recovery we, we, we had managed to, 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 to build in, um, protecting um, social protection to the best of our ability and, and basic incomes from the most vulnerable, uh, you know, restoring twice the minimum wage and the cuts made by Fianna Fáil, um, protecting trade unions, um, doing collective bargaining, the, for, the only country in Europe that, that did it during the crisis, restoring uh, local employer agreements, um, which were struck down by the courts, uh, which were really important for sectors, very vulnerable sectors of, of workers. Um, but we didn't get a chance to make that argument on the doors. Why not? Because people had made up their mind. They'd made up their minds. And I found that during the campaign. Um, partly it was timing because we had just had three months of rain. Uh, half the country was underwater. There was a, it was dark and dismal anyway. And people weren't willing in the dark of winter to open the doors and listen uh, to our, to our because story. you had some hope, didn't you? I don't want to, you know, revive over these old. These ashes have been raked over pl- mm. plenty in the in the twelve yes. months since. But you know, there was some debate in the run up to the election about whether there was some argument that Fine Gael wanted to go earlier and Labour didn't want to go in the expectation or the hope, perhaps, mm. just that that some recovery would take place uh, because because of the economic recovery. Well, of course, the, the, there was debate about whether we should wait for the um, fairly positive budget to have impact in people's pockets in January. Um, and most of us felt that that would be a good thing. Um, but I, as I say, the I, I think the, the protracted bad weather, sense of gloom, sense of annoyance built up in people. And as the election just went up, you know, the, the election date went out and out and out uh, and became inevitable, uh, we suffered a consequence of it. Since then, have you done, just from a purely electoral point of view, have you done, have you done an analysis for your own purposes of where your votes went? Um, yes, of course, we have. Um, but we also have done a much more important analysis from my perspective in to talk to our own people on the ground. I've spoken, obviously, to every candidate that stood in the election. I've spoken to every candidate that stood in the local elections in 2014, which in many ways was the precursor of uh, the last general election. Um, I've spoken to every segment of the party, every unit of the party, from constituency organisations to Labour women, Labour youth, uh, Labour trade unions and so on. Um, and it is very heartening. The spirit of the party is very strong. Um, we are determined to rebuild, and I think there's two things we want to do. We're not going to disown what we did in the past, uh, but we want to acknowledge the failures of the, of the past as well. Um, we are a party of doing, uh, and it's, it's you know, a problem for the centre-left across Europe now. Social democratic parties are under enormous pressure uh, under enormous strain. Uh, in many ways, social democracy uh, has set the agenda for the, the post-Second World War Europe. Um, welfare states, ensuring that there's proper health care, universal education, uh, embedding in our laws the concept of equality, whether it is for disabled people, for women, uh, for uh, people of different um, sexual orientation. All of that has been the social democratic project. And in many ways, it's almost been taken for granted. And we need to refashion it, not only in Ireland, but across Europe. But, but, ta- but taking that on board, sorry, I'll bring you in a second, taking that on board, th- it, it's clear, and you, you, I mean, you brought in the European example, it's clear that that butters no parsnips with electorates across Europe, whether it be the, the socialists in Spain, the collapse of the Socialist Party apparently in France, the dismal performance in Germany, the kind of the, the, the takeover of the Labour Party and the 
um, and the electoral disasters it has faced in in Britain. Uh, again and again and again, the electorate has moved on, perhaps in ways that you may not like, but it's moved on. You're absolutely right, and that's the very point I'm trying to make. Um, the traditional social democratic values that most people um, rally to, a majority in the rest of Europe, um, less than a majority in Ireland, because we always had to compete with you know, the populism of Fianna Fáil for the same space. Um, it has lost its currency. And, you know, um, people use the word populism now. Uh, and I know that aggravates a number of people. What does exactly populism mean? I think there is a sense that for the first time since the war, in most European countries, there is not a certainty that the future will be better than the past. And that's been, if you like, the promise of social democracy, that the future will be better, that we will have a better uh, public system of health and education, uh, that we will have more leisure, uh, more capacity. We will endow the arts. There will be, life will be better. And that has been the promise fulfilled generationally uh, for the last 50, 60 years. But it's not been fulfilled since the economic collapse. Uh, and I suppose if you look at the way global capital has changed um, and globalization has allowed capital to be mobilized, we haven't um, had a countervailing power um, within social democracy to temper that for the last uh, 20 but years. But the argument probably. for those from the left in particular of social democracy is that social democracy made an accommodation with what, what some people call neoliberalism mm -hmm. in the years after Thatcherism and Reaganism and that Blair and Clinton and other social democratic parties, including the ones here, accepted the idea that there was no alternative to a certain type of globalised uh, economic capitalist order and that in doing so they lost touch with their with their core electorate. Well, the, you know, the, the attitude... And that the, and that the economic crash just, just served to heighten that. Well, the attitude of social democracy has always been, uh, you know, to, uh, if you like, you said, make an accommodation to temper the excesses of capitalism and that was the, the, the deal uh, in the post-Second World War settlements uh, that allowed prosperity um, for Western Europe and uh, uh, ultimately uh, reunited Europe because Eastern Europe wanted part of that prosperity. Uh, but you're right, there was a fundamental sundering of that in the Reagan-Thatcher period. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk in social democracy at that stage of a third way uh, and finding that, and Blair seemed to have found that. Um, Clinton seemed to have found that. They did... Um, in many ways, I mean, both created virtually full employment in their own economies. Uh, there was constant uh, rise in, in, in wages, and we put behind many of the strife uh, of the past. Um, but I think the technology and the mobility of, of capitalism was something that uh, continued at a much faster pace than the countervailing um, anchors or, or temperings were possible. Um, and that has come home to roost because... Um, we allowed in this country, and we argued about it, if you look at the, the Bertie Ahern years, um, we went out of government in 97 when we had a plan uh, for full employment. We were very close to it. We were creating more than 1,000 jobs a week at that stage. Um, we had a balanced budget and a, a budget running in surplus um, with um, uh, Rory Quinn as, as finance minister. Uh, we were advanced in the settlement in Northern Ireland at the time. And what happened when we went out of government, uh, was a PD laissez-faire mentality dominated, uh, deregulation, uh, taking the dead hand of the state off capital, uh, and people wanted it. 
they voted in Bertie three times because um, happy days were here again and the houses that we bought to live in suddenly became yeah, assets. What I, what I wonder in relation to that was whether the electoral success of Bertie or Hearn had all ended in tears, as we know, but that ended up pulling Labour to, to the right in response to the perceived wishes of the electorate. And for example, even in the election of, of last year, People have said that the, the programme for government, which ended up, ironically, with a fin- minority Fine Gael government, actually was to the left of the Labour Party manifesto. Well, there's always a big argument, for example, um, people judge um, how left the, the, the policy position is in relation to taxation, usually. And bluntly, we've been beaten over the head in consistent elections uh, for not promising tax cuts. Um, so our approach in the last election was not to promise tax cuts, but rather... Uh, to try and temper the impact of universal social charge on um, very vulnerable people who, when Fianna Fáil brought it in, it impacted on incomes of €4,000 a year. Uh, so we, we, we had uh, a countervailing um, uh, argument in terms of invest, investing in public services as well, but we did have a, a taxation um, proposal in the last general election that some would have regarded there was no scope at all for any tax uh, reductions. But of course, our, our biggest success in government with Fine Gael is to change their entire economic approach where they wanted to fix the public finances on a rate of three to one. That is, three times as much public expenditure cuts for every one euro of tax increases. Uh, as it turned out, our 50-50 approach was closer to what actually transpired over the course of the five years. And of course, you had outliers like Leo who in 2011 wanted the ratio to be 4 to 1 in favour of tax cuts. Seems to have changed his tune now, though, doesn't he? He has. He has has become, as I said, um, I think I said publicly and half-jokingly, that maybe one of our achievements in government was to um, uh, move uh, Leo and and other thinkers within uh, Fine Gael more into the social democratic space. Just in the year ahead, Brendan, would it be safe to say that that, that this year is perhaps more crucial in your party's recovery and further development because... When you come off the back of a general election result that you guys went through last year, that there is a sense that you have to do your penance for a year, that you have to look inward for a while, refocus on the party before you can go back to the public afresh and anew and get a hearing from the public again. So do you think the next 12 months, you've you, like the last poll the weekend had Labour on 5%, that's where you were at the general election. Mm. The next 12 months will be what tells a tale if the public are willing to listen to you again. Well, I think that um, even that is to think that politics is as it always was. And Mm. politics isn't, either in Ireland or in the United States or anywhere in Europe, is as it always was. Um, Parties don't have an automatic right to exist. Uh, They don't have an automatic right to recover. Uh, We have to make that argument, and I have made that clear to every individual member of the party and every unit of the party. Um, Our roots are deep, our vision is clear, our principles are unchanging and enduring, Uh, for 105 years. But we need to make that concrete in a set of proposals that are relevant to working people today who are very busy or people who are unemployed and are not busy and want to be employed or people who are dependent on public services. So I didn't take for granted that you know, there'll be a, a period of purgatory no, but and then the, recovery. The, the people might be more open to yeah. your argument now. Well, the first year um, had to involve extraordinary internal reorganisation because... We fell off a cliff in terms of resources as well, remember. Um, We had to uh, move our head office. Uh, We have a much more modest resource base. 
we have very few, much fewer people working for us, and we had to let a lot of good comrades who had worked for us in many cases for decades go. Uh, we had to reorganise our, our structure in Leinster House. So th- there was a lot of technical restructuring uh, that were involved over the last number of months before we could actually then re-engage beyond our membership because we have been very deeply engaged with our membership uh, and now got back to our support base, the trade unions, community groups, and people who want to see a different progressive Ireland. Uh, and we've, we've, we've certainly started that. And that, yes, the next phase of Labour rebuild is, <clears throat> is, is absolutely... Are you heartened then by Jack O'Connor, for example, seeking a senior role in the party now? Yeah. Bring it back to connect it with the roots? I think it's a very good thing. Um, obviously, I don't know who else is going to o- offer to be chair of the party and uh, nominations are open until, I think, the 20th of, of um, February. And then that will be determined uh, in April at the Labour Party conference. But it's great that somebody of the calibre of Jack... Uh, with the tradition of defending workers, uh, wants to um, uh, be part of the rebuild, at the core of the rebuild, and I welcome that. I hope there'll be lot, lots more. I mean, we have more than 1,200 new members um, in, in the last few months, a lot of young people. We have appointed 30 area reps, um, including a number of young people mm-hmm. and young women. We, we, we're going now to start selecting doll candidates uh, for areas that um, there are gaps right now. Uh, and I'm optimistic now. People say <laughs> I'm an eternal optimist anyway, but I, I mean, you, you couldn't do the job I have. But I really believe that people now are looking around the world and they're saying, God almighty, Trump? What's happening? Marie Le, Marine Le Pen? Um, and they want people with values who haven't been involved in tribunals and been in, involved in being in politics to enrich themselves. And Labour has never been involved in any of that. Of course, we've made mistakes and all sorts of things. Uh, and we've made compromises, that some of which maybe we should not have made. But our value system is really relevant for a changing world now. And we have to make that concrete. And we will be. Part of the conference, for example, um, will be two new um, policy positions. Uh, one on the future of work which I think is a, is a real big issue um, because work has been casualised, zero-hour contracts. Uh, you saw what happened to the Cleary, Cleary's workers. Um, and how will technology impact on work into the future? Um, I even listened to um, my old colleague, um, former Minister Varoufakis, uh, uh, opine on that on BBC last night. Um, but these are really big issues for us to uh, have a progressive view on that will attract people uh, to. And in terms of having that voice heard, per Fiat's point about coming out after 12 months of, you know, sorting out some of the internal issues, uh, one of the ways in which this moment differs from previous moments when Labour were suffering from a, a electoral setback or coming out of government is that you're further down the pecking order now because the doll is more variegated and there are a number of parties that are larger than you and a number of groupings that are around the same size and... It must be much more difficult this time because you have experienced some of those, those, those instances in the past. Surely it's much harder this time just to hear you, make your voice be heard. That's true. Um, but I, I'm, a, I'm a consummate uh, parliamentarian. I have always argued for a rebalancing of power into parliament. Um, but right now we have... A, 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 I've said uh, it's a do-nothing doll. I mean, last year, 2016, uh, we enacted fewer legislation than any time I've ever seen. Uh, nothing of substance, of real moment, is coming forward from government. And privately, 
um, senior public officials will tell you that they, they don't want to advocate serious legislative proposals. Number one, they're not even sure they'll get through Cabinet with the odd collection of people around the Cabinet table. And certainly, they're not sure of um, what will be the result when it gets through the doll right now, because nobody has a majority. Now, some people rejoice in that. You know, there's a sort of an anarchy involved in that. But it's not good for Ireland in the teeth of the really substantial challenges we now face, because Brexit is as real a challenge as the economic collapse in 2010 was. If that's the case, surely Labour shouldn't focus its attention on the Dáil. If the Dáil is a place where, where for the most part, things of consequence aren't happening, and if part of Labour's mission or objectives over the next while are to remind the electorate that it exists and to revive the principles upon which it stands, maybe the Dáil isn't the place to do it. Well, I think there's some substance in that. Um, we, we don't, as you rightly say, um, we don't have leaders' questions every day anymore. We don't have priority questions every day. Um, we have limited access uh, to the doll in terms of presenting our case. But the doll itself, if anybody sits through it now, I mean, it's, it's like a university debating society. Um, it doesn't do things. Legislation, even important pieces of legislation, uh, for example, the thing that's important to a lot of people, I'm dealing now in Wexford uh, with a shortage of secondary school places and the, the whole issue of being admitted to secondary school on the basis of your religion. We had legislation on that. And what did the, the government do? They didn't, couldn't defeat it, so they just kicked it off for a year. And I can, you know, there's about a dozen bills now where it's got the same treatment, where, okay, we can't deal with this issue, it's important for our people, but um, we'll kick it off for another year. On the basis, there'll probably be a general election by then. Uh, you can't deal with issues of substance on that basis, and that's why it worries me when we need to be decisive on a number of key issues that we won't have the strength to do that. I mean, we would not have made the economic progress over the five years, 2011 to 2016, um, if we hadn't got the capacity to do things in the doll. Um, not all popular, but sometimes you have to make an argument for what you believe in and hope that... Um, uh, that people ultimately would see that. But given thing. that you're a small party with few, much lower amount of resources than, than you had previously, and given that some of the parties with whom you're competing, I think of the AAA, PBP, for example, have a lot of their focus outside the doll, yeah. um, perhaps it, you need to make some tough choices about where, where one's time and resources should be spent. I think that's a fair point. Um, I'm, as I said, we're, we're certainly looking out and reaching out uh, to the trade union movement, to community groups, to progressive activists, uh, to charities, to um, working people who uh, want a progressive Ireland but see in you know some of the alternatives that purport to be of the left simply further anarchy, who, who actually don't believe in the progression of parliamentary progress but actually see the collapse of capitalism as their objective. Um, I don't know what they're going to put beyond that, but... Uh, they even have a short-term objective of destroying us, which is even more perverse, uh, because they prefer uh, parties of the of the far right uh, to to be their challengers rather than um, parties of the left, who are doing parties who want to make a difference, who actually want to get in there, roll up their sleeves, and make life better for working people. You have limited doll time. You said that it's the way that the current doll configuration works. You get very limited opportunities at mm. leaders' questions. Is it the, is like issues of appointments to the judiciary, which has been an issue at Cabinet, is that the best thing for you to be raising on the floor of the dog, considering you're t trying to talk to, you know, what you said, issues of work, zeros, contracts, technology? Is that speaking to that voter, or are you kind of mis misjudging the doll time you have 
to spend time on subjects that perhaps well, you're not first, talking to the right people. Well, the very first um, doll motion we had in our very first um, private members' time mm. was dealing with the future of work, dealing with zero-hour contracts, dealing with casual employment, and we got that passed. It was the first defeat of the current government. Uh, so they'll always be our bread and butter, our uh, prime focus. Uh, but there are other issues. Uh, I mean, if you look at what's happening in the United States right now, um, you need to have checks and balances in a political system. And the notion um, uh, we, we had last night, the appointment of Donald Trump's pick in the Supreme Court, now that has enormous significance mm. on the policy of the United States uh, for the next generation. He's 49 years of age, the person he's picked, and that will influence fundamental issues uh, of public policy in the United States. So judiciary is important um, and we need to have a transparent way of ensuring it. I think we've been very fortunate in Ireland, um, but we do need to, to modernise the way we, we, we select judges. But it shouldn't be a, a political I- issue. Uh, and I do think we need a degree of expertise involved. The same way as mm. if you're going to have a, you know, select uh, a consultant surgeon uh, for the matter hospital, but is you'd, right li- you'd like a few doctors to be on the panel. In fact, you'd like a majority of doctors to be making that decision. It's, it, like obviously, the Labour Party views are are, are, are very clear on that. Yeah. But is it the right subject to go to go into battle on? You know, if perhaps we're in an age of anti-elitism and you have to appeal to a certain target audience, you're in the space with well, PBP, the AA. It is, it is, it is one issue, um, but it's certainly not uh, the major focus. Um, I, I get one leader's question every week, and every third week I get two. Yeah. Uh, so if you look at the the issues that I picked. Um, it is normally uh, issues that are at the core bread and butter issues of Labour Party policy. Just on that, you know, when you took over as leader, a lot of people in the party said that the the first stage of recovery would be to the liberal middle class vote that Labour traditionally got that shied away from it. Is that the first real march back to increased all representation, that liberal vote? I think that's an important component part of our vote and it's actually the one that stayed with us um, in the last election. If you look at the, the actual, because you asked me earlier on, did we look at who voted for us? Of course we did. And liberal progressives did stick with us by and large. Um, what we lost is working class people who lost faith with us. I mean, we need, they're the rebuild that we need to reconnect with in communities. And that's happening. Um, you know, I've talked to Willie Penrose and he's in working class estates uh, in Mullingar. He's talking to people, he's reconnecting with people. And I know, I know from my own constituency and I know from going around the country, there are people... Brendan, we fell out with you, but we know where you stand. We'll be back with you. Mm. And we need to get them to, from that we'll be back with you to actually be part of rebuilding. And I've said repeatedly that I want a different type of Labour Party. I want a very inclusive Labour Party where joining the party means that you're actually shaping the future. Uh, so we have, we have a constitutional review going on uh, under Jan O'Sullivan. There's been hundreds of submissions from individual party members on that. And the, I'll be bringing uh, a first draft of a new constitution uh, to the executive in the next couple of weeks, and that'll be before conference again in April. Uh, and as I say, we'll be doing um, two significant policy platforms. The overall policy is being reviewed uh, under the stewardship of... Is that likely to impact on issues such as the way in which the next leader might be elected? Um, the leader of the party will be elected by, um, by the vote of the, the membership, having been nominated by uh, two members of the parliamentary party. Will that remain, given the controversy there was well, the last time? And as far as I remember, following your election, there was a commitment to review the constitution because it was perhaps deemed to be unsuitable for a party of such small doll representation. And 
you're saying that that rule will remain in place. No, I'm, I'm not saying that because uh, that hasn't been determined at all yet. Um, there's a re- working group. I'm not on it. Uh, I'll see what they propose in relation to that and every other issue. Yeah. I've said absolutely open um, a blank sheet in terms of what needs to be done. Every individual has been made submissions in that. But we have to be practical about how we do things. Uh, that will go to the executive and the then whatever proposals will go to conference. And the members, as always, will determine all these matters. You're listening to the Irish Times. It was interesting to hear what you were talking about, about the policy on work, because mm. one of the things that people are saying about the progressive movements, both of the right and of the left internationally over the over the last few years, is that the analysis of globalization always looks at the impact of international trade and and migration patterns to some extent, but doesn't but actually automation and technology are as big, if not bigger, than those instances in terms of the way the patterns of work are changing. So can we expect to see some major changes in the way that uh, labour approaches issues such as public service pay, the rights of workers vis-a-vis employers, and, and how all those things will work? And is it actually possible for you know legislation within a small country on the periphery of the European Union to impact on these, on these huge issues? Really? Well, you've made a number of very, very important points. Uh, the first thing is, yes, your analysis, your, your presentation is exactly the space we're looking at now. Um, I think we've looked at globalization from a trade perspective um, too narrowly. The impact on workers um, has to be front and center in, in any international trade negotiation. Uh, and you're right, it, that can't be done by a small country on the periphery of Europe alone. And that's why uh, the Labour Party remains very strong supporters of the European project and the European uh, the, uh, of the EU itself, but a reformed EU. And I've, I've made these points. I've been at a, a number of EU leaders, uh, social democratic leaders, meetings since I became leader. Uh, and I made, at the last leaders meeting before Christmas, a concrete proposal, which has been accepted by the Party of European Socialists, and there's a working group de- dealing with it now, to, to deal with, for example, um, how uh, the Stability and Growth Pact is determined and how it impacts on investment. Uh, So we need to change uh, some of the bedrock issues within uh, the the, the way the the European Union functions. Um, But I I still think the notion that um, we would revert to a protectionist nation-state approach to the world is frightening and will be very damaging for Ireland and for the Irish people. I think you know, even the, the British people looking at um, Theresa May firstly going, you know, in a supine way to Donald Trump so that he can hold her hand and walk out when he was actually at the same time drafting uh, an outrageous set of executive orders that impact on, uh, on migration uh, and on Muslims. And her next port of call from that was to go to Turkey uh, to talk to... Um, uh, a president who is now suppressing political dialogue, a free press. Um, if that is what trade is going to be reduced to, um, it's a frightening vista, and we have to uh, protect the values that the European Union have enshrined. Uh, I mean, the European Union was a project of visionaries after the Second World War who thought the world could be organized in a different way based on principles of human rights, and the European Convention on Human Rights was the first grounding bedrock Uh, obviously from the Council of Europe before the EU was established at all, Uh, but laced through the policy platform of the EU uh, has been individual human rights um, and the uh, the principle of equality. 
and we need to get back to that uh, and reshape it for the modern world. Well, for people living in the modern world in 2017, and they look, say, for example, at the future for their kids, and they look at trends in employment and uh, manufacturing disappearing and being replaced by automation, uh, the fact that people don't have security of tenure anymore in their jobs, as you said, the fact that essentially trade unionism is increasingly located within the, within the state employers and uh, and and is is less prevalent in the in the economy as a whole. I mean, those are all huge issues which some people are putting forward radical proposals for in relation to a universal basic yes. basic income. Yes. I mean, are those the types of things that you'd be looking at? Yes, um, I, I certainly would be looking at what, what's going to happen into the future to ensure that nobody is excluded from a basic standard of living because the, the volume of work is diminished. But I remember, you know, when, when I was in school um, a good many years ago, uh, the vision of the future when you were writing, you know, Ireland in the 21st century was everybody's robots would be doing everything and we'd all have 24-hour uh, leisure. That didn't become the reality. The reverse became the reality. We're working longer um, and work has been more casualized. We need to have a countervailing view of how that can be combated. And that is the job of social democracy and the job of, uh, of labor parties uh, to ensure, firstly, that people have the dignity of work uh, but also have an opportunity, you know, in the uh, the old phrase, um, not only the, the loaf of bread, but the rows on the table so that you, you develop the arts, uh, you develop um, a capacity of people to express themselves beyond simply work, uh, and that you ensure that you have public services that are available to everybody on the basis of need. Uh, that can be afforded because the amount of global capacity to pay for these things has not diminished. It's just been... Segregated into the hands of few. Well, to go back to my point earlier about mm. neoliberalism, people mm. would argue that, in in the words of a well-known politician, the system is rigged, um, and that you know the the analysis which says that inequality, often often under social democratic uh, governments across the across the world, inequality has increased over the last 10, 10 or twenty years yeah. rather than decreased. I've had this debate with a number of people, and we talk about relative inequality. Um, equal. Uh, I mean, the notion that people's standard of living has been inexorably increasing up to recent times, is a fact. Uh, the fact that a top tier of 1% internationally have become richer beyond you know, the, the dreams of crisis is an, a, an amazing uh, fact. Um, we can't control that within the borders of Ireland. We can begin to control it within an entity like the European Union uh, to ensure that some countries have legislated for... Um, you know, a pay relativity that nobody can earn more in the system uh, than whatever multiple you choose of the average industrial wage. Uh, and these are the things that we need to have a debate about now. Um, we're not against the creation of wealth. We're in favour of the creation of wealth. But we're in favour of the distribution of wealth in a way that ensures that everybody is a decent standard of living. To find a policy platform to do that in the 21st century is challenging. Social democracy hasn't done it in the last decade. Uh, and they're the debates the Labour Party is engaged in here. Can I ask you, just, you were talking about the, the balance between the, perhaps social democracy and, you know, maybe liberalism in terms of rights of the, not abortion rights, that type of stuff, you know. Um, could you perhaps see yourself torn maybe post-election the next time between uh, the liberalism of a party led by Leo Varadkar and the social democracy of a party led by Michal Martin, and which would you choose? <laughs> um I regard, you know, in, in the, f the famous words, uh, both imposters equally. Um, I, I, I don't believe Lib Leo is a liberal. And I don't believe Michal Martin is a, a People describe himself as a classic liberal. Uh, whatever that means. Um, I, I mean, Leo 
his view, uh, and I, I think he has tempered over the last three or four years, but his view in the negotiations that I was involved in directly in 2011 mm. uh, would have been at the extreme right wing of Fine Gael. Mm. Um, Micheál Martin is part of a populist party that has been the most successful political machine in Ireland since the foundation of the state. But if neoliberalism gets them into power, then the PDs are our bestest pal and off we go. Um, uh, if social democracy gets us into power, then I'm sure the Labour Party uh, is, um, is the job. <laughs> I tell you a little vignette, which I shouldn't probably um, publicly disclose, but um, when I became Las Cancorla, um, OPW offered me a piece of sculpture for my desk, for the office. And I went down to see, and they had a few abstract pieces of work, but they'd one bust of Connolly. I said, that's what I'd have. It was the maquette from the um, statue outside Liberty Hall. Uh, and he said, we actually just got it back. It, it was in Bertie Ahern's office f- during the election. He actually had it put there for the election because he obviously thought <laughs> that that would be the proper yeah. image and uh, obviously sent it back as soon as, as soon as that was over. So Fianna Fáil, you know, are chameleons mm. and they will, they will be whatever the flavour of the popular mood is at the time. Uh, but you need people who are genuinely committed. And we, uh, the Labour Party mm. have that view from its founding fathers and mothers. Um, it, we've gone astray several times, we've made mistakes, but we're anchored in a core value system that we really need to, well, to, now, to now, impl- now, implement in you're now, Ireland. You're now fighting for your life, as you said earlier on as well, because you have an extremely aggressive grouping on your left, the A8 PUP, mm. who are of a similar standing to you now in both parliamentary representation and opinion poll uh, standings. Given what you said about the review of the constitution and you know way, the way you would pick a leader, would you hope that the constitutional review will prevent what happened in the UK happening to your Labour Party, that there could be entries on such a scale that your party is taken over effectively and social democracy is subsumed to... Oh, indeed, in France, some people say now yes. as well. So yeah. would, you, would you hope that, that the rules would prevent that happening and that you know giving the members the say isn't perhaps the panacea that people think it well, is. Well, I think we always have to have checks and balances on these things. Um, the social And the Parti Socialiste, I remember talking to them 20 years ago in France when they were uh, in, in the post-Mitterrand period on their knees and they actually talked about folding up the party then and relaunching with a new brand. Mm. So, I mean, these things are not, not new. Um, obviously, the Labour Party in the UK must be a grim sight for you, though. Well, I was at the Labour Party conference um, in Liverpool last year, and I spoke to a huge number of people, people who have traditionally been close to the Irish Labour Party. Uh, there is, you know, there, without putting too uh, fine a point on it, you know there are two distinct factions within the party, and I think that um, those who oppose Jeremy Corbyn are simply now resigned to await the outcome of the election. Defeat? Um, the opinion polls will indicate that. Hmm. And I think that's a very bad position for Britain because, again, you need somebody, uh, you need a party, a traditional Labour Party in Britain to be able to deal with Theresa May. Um, I mean, the people she's put into government, you know, the Boris Johnsons, uh, the David Davids and all the rest, they are, uh, I mean, they're people that the normal Labour Party would be able to, to deal with in a way that would surge the popular support for the Labour Party. That hasn't happened under Jeremy. Maybe it will. Maybe it will. Um, but um, that's a matter for themselves. Uh, my task, um, and I have to be humble about it, is to look at ensuring that the values and traditions of a party that I've given my life to, that you know, I, I think of people in my own constituency 
including my own father, who struggled in the worst of times, were beaten up for it in, not physically, but, uh, you know, as um, as outliers of Irishness um, during the 50s and the 60s. A value system that is really important and that I know has made a tremendous difference because all the things that we now regard as normal, people laugh when I say that I, as Minister for Health in 1993, that's not ancient history, um, brought in the legislation de- uh, deregulating condoms you're not serious. Mm. Uh, you know, a few years before that, you needed a doctor's prescription. The notion that we would have equality in relation to, to marriage, even in 2011, I couldn't get, we couldn't get as the Labour Party, Fine Gael to agree to a constitutional amendment on that. Mm. Uh, accepting all those things, isn't, doesn't the, the history of the last couple of years show us that, admirable though many people may find those, it butters no parsnips when it comes to election time? Well, that's an exact phrase from, from, um, from Pat Rabbit. Um, he exactly said that and he was right. Um, Bond you, I think you saw it most times. But in many, in many issues, you know, and I found people ask me, what were the issues that were on the door in the last election? And it was, a, it was a very odd election in many, many ways. But for the first time, every single household saw the election through their own prism. It was what affected my household, my family, uh, because people were frightened. Uh, they didn't have, you know, it, it, it wasn't looking at the broader perspective of what the government should be or where we should be going as a nation. It was, I want security for my family because of the fear of the last five or six years. And in many ways, I've, I've explained it, and maybe I'm completely wrong, that, you know, our opinion poll rating wasn't too bad in the early years of, 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 of the, uh, the last government, although that was the period when we had to do the, the most difficult things because people were still fearful of complete collapse. You won a presidential election and a by-election that's, that's, just bare months after the general election in 2011. That, that's the point, uh, having implemented the budget. Um, but I think almost as we got into safer territory, people could feel... I think that, it, was the, it was the 12 months after the opinion politics tanked and never improved. Yeah, I think that's about right. Um, but, you, you know, that's, I think that's a lesson for us. Um, we got so immersed in, in the doing of it we didn't bring people with us. And I think you know, we made big mistakes. And I've, I've, I've said what they are. On my, way, on my way down here, I bumped into this person who was in the, the last Oireachtas. And he, he's, they were, I asked him, how did you think the Labour Party was getting on? He wasn't too complimentary. And he said, let's look the next election. We'll have a new leader in Fine Gael. We'll have probably have a new leader in Sinn Féin, new generation. And they questioned whether you would be the right person to lead Labour into the next election, given that we would have a step change in Irish politics. And perhaps they'd have felt maybe it was ready for Labour to move on. Maybe so. Um, I mean, I have made myself available. I'm the leader of the party. Um, I have uh, the energy and vision Mm. of what the Labour Party needs. Um, I think sometimes you need uh, a steady hand. Uh, Sometimes you need a radical hand. Uh, Sometimes you need uh, people with experience. Sometimes you need somebody with no experience. Um, uh, The Labour Party has made its decision. Uh, I am up for the task. There will be many external commentators Mm. who wish us ill who will have many things to say about me and about the party and about individuals in the party. Um, but I believe that the platform we will put forward will be one that will attract voters to it. I hope we'll have lots of young people and I hope that uh, after the election uh, we'll have a parliamentary party full of, of young people. What would you count as a successful election? Doubling your representation? I've said that's the target, um, both for the locals and for the next Dáil election, to double our seats. Uh, it's an ambitious target from the for the difficulties that you've outlined and I, I have no illusions about that 
I've said all along uh, that, you know, there won't be any immediate bounce back because people are still in flux politically. And you can see that anywhere in the world, if you look right now. And none of the old certainties are, are true. So that means we have to talk to people individually. We have to win them to the view. And what I'm asking, I'm inviting people to join us and shape the future. If you think there's things wrong about the Labour Party, come in and change us. Uh, because it's, a, it's an, you know, uh, an open organisation. Um, it, an it's an ideas-based organisation where people with ideas who want to make a difference, who obviously have to sign up to the value systems that we have, uh, are very welcome. I mean, that's a, that's a modest but attainable objective if things were to go well for you at the next election. Um, that, as often happens when Labour gets a trashing on coming out of government, you've been left with a, a number of TDs uh, scattered around the country in constituencies, most of them outside Dublin, only a single TD in Dublin now, I think I'm right in saying, two, I beg your pardon. And then the, in, the, in the greater Dublin area or in East Leinster, very few. Is that where the focus needs to be in urban fo Ireland? And well, the focus would be the um, where we're, we're traditionally strong. And we still have, I mean, I go to constituencies I'm still in when I when I go to constituency meetings. I'm still meeting the same volume of people uh, as we did when we had TDs. Um, we haven't lost our membership. In fact, we've um, we've held on very well to our membership. Um, but we want to grow that, uh, and we want to find people uh, who will stand for for um, public office at local level and at national level for the party, uh, and be part of the next generation of Labour. And that's the task we have in hand. And in terms of both competing and also to take another spin, just finally on, on Felix's question about other parties. I mean, there are parties and independents of the left aplenty in the Dáil. Uh, mo most prominently Sinn Féin um, claims to be left. Felix too modest to say it, but uh, he got Mary Lou Macdonald to admit that they were shifting gently in terms of their position on future government arrangements fo following the next mm -hmm. election. Is there some argument that, um, I mean, many of those left-wing TDs and small parties such as Social Democrats have roots, have roots in the Labour Party. Is there any argument for some form of consolidation on the on the centre left? Well, there's always that debate. I mean, um, under Dick Spring, we brought in the Jim Kemi party. Uh, we then had the merger with the Democratic left. We we've always the Labour Party is the the solid anchor of the left from the foundation of the state. Uh, other people, you know, uh, ultimately migrate towards us if they're in the democratic uh, and socialist. Uh, sphere. Does the scale of Sinn Féin now not change that dynamic or that gravitational field? Well, I, I, I think it, it is, it's not a truism to say that Sinn Féin is a, is a party of the left. I've had this discussion with significant members of Sinn Féin. Uh, and while you, know, you can name people who are left thinkers and who actually are uh, left by inclination and by f philosophical approach, but there are plenty who are not within Sinn Féin. There are plenty of people who are uh, narrow nationalists who are attracted to the traditional um, combative banner, let's be discreet about these things, of Sinn Féin, um, who wouldn't be comfortable even in a progressive space. And you can see that particularly in the North, where they have power. They are extraordinarily careful about taking progressive stands on a number of issues because they don't want to uh, offend their traditional conservative nationalist base. Now, Maybe they're moving into, um, because certainly there's many of them uh, at leadership level probably want to, into, into a progressive uh, space. But I wouldn't certainly count uh, Sinn Féin necessarily now being a, a socialist or social democratic or even a left party. But you'd be open to doing business with them. Um, I have difficulties um, in terms of their economic approach. Um, I mean, Sinn Féin is, is what Fianna Fáil were in the 30s. 
they're entirely populist. Fianna Fáil would describe themselves as the real Labour Party of Ireland in that era. Well, in many ways they were because they did things that, that Labour didn't do in its early in its earliest manifest, manifestations. But we we fundamentally altered that in the last number of decades. Um, but you, you know, it is true that the attitude of Sinn Féin in 2011 was tell the Troika to get lost because that was a great throwaway remark and take their money with them. Now, what would have happened if that had been implemented? And they haven't resigned from that. As let's, uh, let's, let's, let's take post-election 2017 or 18. Well, but let me, let me just yeah. tell you what would have happened had we followed that pathway, which they're now still advocating as the right course for Labour, and that's mm-hmm. our big mistake. We didn't do that in 2011. Um, Syriza did it in, 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 um, in Greece. Um, their economy collapsed. There's not a cent left in it. Uh, the most recent IMF analysis says that by 2060, that's two generations away, their indebtedness will be 285% of GDP and their debt repayment will be 62% of gross national product. They have 24% unemployment in Greece right now and it's a place without an expectation of hope. That was the vision that could have been us. We could have been worse than Greece, but we didn't take that path, thankfully. So, you know, just as people are finding out in, in America right now in relation to Trump, there is a consequence to your vote and the notion that you can have simplistic sloganizing. They're all well and good and there's a comfort in that. But that doesn't, to re, re, reuse the phrase, butter anybody's pastimes. The doers in politics are the people who will make the hard decisions, even when it means unpopularity, that will sustain uh, the living standards of working people and give us a basis to do better into the future. And that's what Labour did. What would you do business with them? Um, as I said, I, I haven't ruled that out. Uh, I haven't ruled anything out. I mean, the approach that Labour has always taken is on a policy basis. Who will talk to us on a policy basis? But we're rigorous about that. And we won't take sloganising as a policy uh, platform. Finally, I mean, Donald Trump has cropped up several times over the course of this conversation. So I'll finish off by asking you a question which everybody's been asked over the last while, which is, should the Taoiseach go to the White House on March the 17th? Well, I'm somebody who really values uh, that access. Uh, I, under, I appreciate it. I understand it. I've been to the United States as a minister. I've been around the world as a minister in Paddy's Day. And it's an extraordinary platform for access and influence for a small country. Uh, so I'd be very reluctant to move away from that. But I think fundamentally there's a paradigm shift with the election of Donald Trump. He, his policy platform is so alien to the principles that we've stood for. And I've said, you know, we have, as a country, celebrated a centenary of Irish, the Irish Republic, the 1916 rising, what it meant for us. We've done a lot of thought, uh, uh, thinking about that. Uh, and I think we had a good year. But it means standing up for those principles and values as well. So I said um, on Sunday that he shouldn't go because I don't actually believe that, um, in truth, that Enda Kenny is going to eyeball Donald Trump and say, uh, Mr. President. Well, everything we know about Donald Trump is that would be even worse than not going, wouldn't it? Well, that's the point. Um, So if he's going to do that, I think that would be a good thing. But he needs to do that publicly and privately. And that is... um, in Washington, to use the platform he has there to simply say the views of the people of Ireland in relation uh, to his policies on women, on the disabled, on migrants, on climate change are all anathema to us, to the majority of the Irish people. 
Uh, and Are there dangers in telling the leader of the most powerful country in the world that he's an international pariah? Yes, of course there is. Of course there's dangers in, in that. Uh, we could go sycophantic to him. And as I said, that's what I saw with Theresa May because the consequence of Brexit was she feels vulnerable now. The, he, she needs uh, trade deals with the United States and so on. Now, we have huge connections with the people of the United States. And Donald Trump, he has a majority, um, you know, well, he won a, a, a presidential election uh, under their own rules. But he is not the United States. And presidents come and go. We obviously have a relationship with the people of the United States that we should maintain. So I support Charlie... Uh, Flanagan been in Washington this week advocating for our undocumented uh, looking after the interests of Ireland and we will continue to do that but as presidents in the past particularly presidents have to say nominated by the Labour Party um, we can do that in a principled way without offending people by simply saying friends talk like this these are the values we stand for Uh, and I listened to Mary Robinson this morning and I fully agree with, with what she said Brendan Howland, thanks very much for coming in. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Remember, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast provider and rate and share us because that helps to get our message out to a broader audience. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and to engineer, JJ Vernon. And remember, you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or tweet me at hlinahan. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 